So the Apostle Paul writes, starting in verse 11, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the, the opportunity to open it and to uh, see what you would have to teach us today. God, we pray that you would use your word um, to shape your people. God, we thank you for the message of the gospel that has gone out this Christmas season, that has gone out this Lord's day. And we ask that you would bless the going out of your word, that you would use it to to uh, change hearts, to draw people to yourself, um, God, and to bring revival to our own hearts, to our families, to our churches, and to our community. Father, we thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I wanted to, uh, tonight to kind of, uh, give a sermon that's kind of broad in scope. Um, as we head into the new year, this is sort of a closing out year, but obviously with, with a year that is coming up that will be full of, uh, probably lots of different changes in terms of, um, uh, how we're doing things and, and different stuff because of, of, of connections with the mother church and, and just all the things that come together about that. Um, and so, uh, what I want to talk about is, is something that a lot of this is going to be things that we've talked about a lot already. In fact, I think this passage in many ways is a great closing to the book of Philippians that we were in all through the fall. And this is a good little postscript to it, um, to take a step further in it. But the question is maybe where do we go from here? Like what's the next step? What needs to happen? Well, what needs to happen is the same thing that always should be happening. Um, nothing that happens to us circumstantially in the next few weeks, months, even years will change the essential mission and function of the church. Okay. We should still be about the goal of making disciples, that is, calling people into a relationship with Jesus Christ, growing in Christ, serving together in Christ, and making disciples. That's what we should be about. And so when we look back at this Ephesians passage, going back to verse 1, let's kind of get a running start at it. I'm not going to dig into verses 1 through 10, but we just want to sort of read them and and give us a, a running start. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, right? That's very similar to the phrase that we read in in the book of Philippians. Walk worthy, walk in a manner worthy to your calling, to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, right? So we know the message of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is this, that Jesus has come and Uh, He has saved us by his life, death, and resurrection. This salvation he offers us is a free gift of his grace to be received by faith, to be accompanied by repentance. And when we are saved, we believe that the Holy Spirit indwells us and begins to work in us in a, in a, 
like you would say, from the inside out, um, marking us, sealing us, empowering us to do exactly what it says in verse 1, to walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And then that worthiness, that manner of, of life is characterized by these traits that it talks about in verse 2. Humility, not self-righteousness. Gentleness, not the will to dominate. Patience, not being quick-tempered. Bearing with one another. That is to say, not quitting on people out of annoyance or hassle or anger. And then it goes on, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Right, So that idea that as we come together in Christ, we have a common cause, we have a common care, we have a common commitment to this new way of life that we have been called to. And really, again, that's sort of a summary of many of the themes that we hit when we were in the book of Philippians. But we come down to verse 4, 5, and 6, and it tells us the exact basis of that unity. Why are we unified in those ways, right? How could we be unified as these people who come from all different places and all different backgrounds and all different worldviews and things like that? How can those people be unified in the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace? Why? Because God himself is unified and we are all now found in Christ. So verse four, he says, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Okay, That's the ultimate basis of our unity, is the fact that God is unified. There is neither division um, in in the Godhead. They, the, the persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're not at odds with each other, right? They're not arguing and bickering and, and things like that. He has established one faith because he is one God as a means of communion with his people. So now here's a question. So how does that work? What is, what is, what happens next in this series? We, we have, uh, we have joined ourselves to Christ. We have been joined to Christ. We are one, um, or there's a reality of our oneness in the spirit and the bond of peace. And yet it's something we are also working on. So what do we do now? How do we go about this life of being in Christ? What is our modus operandi? Right. You hear that word sometimes on like, Honestly, on serial killer shows, um, right? Like, um, what do, what is, what are the characteristics that are, are typical of our mode of operation? That's what it literally means. What are, what are the ways that we go about the standard operating practices? What are the habits of the Christian in this area? Well, verse seven, he says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And so he says, the way this works out is that everybody has been given gifts in different ways to serve the church. And he goes into verse 8 through 10, and we won't break that down, but he's basically just saying, this is the Jesus who the Old Testament said was going to come and give us gifts. He is the one that has descended to earth. He is the one who has ascended to heaven. This is the one that has given us gifts. Okay, then now we come to verse 11. So that's sort of the quick 1 through 10. Now we come to verse 11. We're going to camp out in 11 through 16. So he says, and as a function of these gifts, specifically some of the gifts that he gave, that he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Okay, God gave these categories of people to his church, these particular giftings as as categories to his church. To kind of go through it real quick. Apostles. So apostles were those who were commissioned directly by Christ. 
They learned under him. They bore personal witness to his life and death and resurrection. Paul, this is the, the, the disciples that we know of, the 12 disciples, right? Um, Paul is also considered an apostle, but he himself admits that he's sort of a weird apostle because he was called in a slightly different way than the rest of them. But the reality is this. We believe that the role of apostle um, ended with the New Testament era. Okay, So there aren't apostles anymore. Um, the apostles were the bridge between the verbal teachings and works of Jesus and then the recorded word of the works and teachings of Jesus in the New Testament. And so that's what the apostles were. And we don't have apostles now. But we still have the rest of these roles, um, at least in some function. The second one he says is prophets. Again, how do we define a prophet? Prophets are, are sort of a weird category, and lots of people interpret that differently. But a very broad sense we could say a prophet is someone who can say, thus says the Lord. Okay? It's not just somebody who can tell the future. That's that's not the exact, that happens sometimes in the Old Testament, but that's not the main function. The function of a prophet is somebody who says, thus says the Lord, who speaks on behalf of God. And obviously, again, it's debated as to the nature of that in our current world, the extent, the continuance of that gift in modern times. Uh, all you have to do is, Talk to some of your charismatic or Pentecostal friends, and you will realize that there are differing opinions about how all that plays together. Okay? But let's keep going. Evangelists. This is another specific gift that God has given to his church. An evangelist is a herald of the gospel. He is a teller of the good news of Jesus Christ. They announce the good news of Jesus Christ. They call people to faith and repentance. So the truth is, we are all evangelists, every single one of us, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, it is your calling and responsibility to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And yet at the same time, we know that there are some people who are particularly gifted at it, right? There are just people who, and they just, they're just, they, their brains work different. They're, the way they engage with people is just different. I don't know what the deal is, but we're all evangelists. And yet God has particularly gifted some people in those things. Shepherds. The fourth role, um, or pastors. Um, these are people that a shepherd or a pastor is concerned with the care and feeding of a flock, right? Their spiritual health and their edification. Then he tacks on another one. There's a teacher. Some people just put those roles together, um, shepherd and teacher. But a teacher is responsible for training um, a group of people, in this case, the flock, in truth, in knowledge, in keeping with the word of God. So these roles, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, the way that it ends up working is they are blended together and bleed into each other in all kinds of different ways. So I was thinking about the fact that, like, so Chuck Finley um, is a watercolor artist by by vocation, right? Watercolor is a great picture of this right here, okay? So the way that these gifts um, merge and fade into each other. There's different hues. There's different deepening. There's different accentuation. Um, if you've known more elders than just me, you probably realize that, man, you take any five pastors and their giftings are all completely different, right? Some guys are really strong in er certain areas and really de-emphasize other areas in terms of these roles. Some people tend to be sort of almost like jacks of all trades, you know? They're just sort of generally good at all of these things. And and, and what does he tell us? He says, Jesus gives these gifts to men and gives these gifts to the church for its proper functioning. 
These elders have a particular objective. Okay. These, these prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers have a specific job in the context of the church. And that's found in verse 12. What do they do? They are here to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Okay. Who are the saints? You guys, right? Um, me too. I'm one of the saints as well. Okay. You know, don't think of the word saints in sort of a Roman Catholic context where you're sort of like, oh yeah, like they're the, you know, the super epitome of all Christians and they get a statue in a church somewhere or whatever. That's not what a saint is. A saint is someone who has been, um, sanctified, who has been set apart by God for his service. And that means a Christian. Okay. So we're talking to you. The job of the prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So why is that particularly important? It's something we've talked about multiple times over the course of the years, but this is part of why it's important, because we have a culture of professionalization and expertise in our world. Okay, the American culture is a culture of professionalization and expertise. So, for example, is your toilet broken? What do you do about that? Well, you call a plumber. You have a plumber come and fix your problem, right? Because you need somebody who's an expert on these things to do it right. Is your car broken? Well, then you take it to a professional mechanic because he's the one who can diagnose the problems and, and do these things right. Does your teenager need to know about Jesus? Well, then we have professional youth ministers, right, who can tell those those teenagers about Jesus. That way you don't have to talk to your kids uh, about Jesus, right? Um, we have this culture that says, I'm scared to do things. Um, it's not my place to do things. I don't know enough to do those things. And the church often works that way, right? You hire a pastor, you hire various ministers, you hire various staff people to do ministry for the community. But that's not the biblical role, according to this passage. That's not the biblical role or objective of an elder. His job, in fact, is to equip the church to do the work of the ministry, with the effect being building up the body of Christ. So that is to say, ministry is the job of everybody, right? It's not my job any more than it is your job. Now, it is my job in the sense that I'm a member of God's people as well, and so I have as much of that calling as a saint to, to do the work of ministry too. But as an elder, my job is specifically equipping you to do the work of ministry. And all that, that the body of Christ would be built up. Okay. So, so I was thinking of illustrations. My parents, uh, met, uh, through the extension service. Okay. So a lot of people, if you're, you may not even remember or know what the extension service is, but the extension service is a, uh, entity that works through the state, usually through universities. And it basically is training to help different aspects of our society do better in certain things, right? So my dad worked in ag extension. And so he was, he was talking to farmers and, and ways of, of better managing their crops and their, um, their herds and whatever else like that. My mom was in home ec extension. And so she was going in and teaching people how to, to sow and to how, 
you know, doing various aspects of, of home economics or whatever. But here's what they weren't doing. They weren't going to your house and doing it for you, right? Okay, that wasn't their job. You don't say, well, I'm a farmer. I need some help. Hey, Jim, you want to come to my house and just do all these things for me? You know how to do them. You're the expert, right? No, that wasn't the function. The way the extension service works is to say, no, you come to us and we'll teach you some things about this. that will make you a little more proficient in these things. And you're going to take those skills and go back to your own fields of, of your own contexts and, and do those things there. Another kind of illustration of it would be a handyman. Okay. Um, we use that phrase. I, you know, I talk to people all the time. Some, some woman will say, you know, well, my husband, he's not very handy or whatever, right? Like he just, he doesn't get how to do all these things, right? Um, I'm getting more handy, um, uh, but it's not natural. Um, it is out of necessity because I just keep on trying to learn how to do these things. But in a sense, we want a handyman church. Now, I don't mean that in terms of things like learning construction and plumbing and electrical and automotive, although those would all be probably helpful skills. But I mean a handyman church in terms of spiritual things, in terms of ministry. It's my job to help you to be built up, to be more capable, competent, and confident in the work of the ministry. And so, you know, one of these things that we've we've talked about, again, multiple times over the years is people will say, hey, shouldn't we be doing a certain kind of ministry? Like, isn't there something that an area of ministry that we should be doing or something? And 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 my typical response is, if there's a person in the congregation who wants to get behind that and from their own energy and passion and gifting start putting some energy into that, then I'm all for the church trying to rally around that and giving that person some support. But if you're talking about saying, you know, there's a generic idea of ministry out there that seems like a good thing that nobody seems to care about or want to do, we should all jump on board with that. And the answer is that's just not the way I think ministries should be done. I say, no, it's your job to do ministry. And you've all got different passions, right? You've all got things you're interested in and you want to do and you know you can do and ways you can help. And so it's your job to say, Ash, I want to, I want to try this. I want to do this. I want to serve in this way. And then it's my job to come along and say, cool, I'm going to find a way to help equip you to be able to do that in a biblically um, appropriate, uh, and, and, and a beneficial way. Okay. So. Zoom in again on the passage, though, in verse 12. What is the purpose for us to equip the saints? Well, it's for building up the body of Christ. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Now, is that so? Uh, the church, the, the whole idea of equipping the saints is so that the church, the body of Christ, would be strengthened. That we, as a congregation, would be built up. Does that mean, does that negate us doing good things for people who are out in the world, um, who are not part of the church? No, of course not. The fact is that as we minister and find ways to serve, we will certainly, um, that will mean doing good to those outside the church. But the specific focus in this passage is that we would be built up in Christ's likeness. That's the point of being equipped. But how? How does, how does that being built up, that growth, what does it look like? What are we building up to? Again, I love Paul's letters are great because he uses these little like clauses, right? He just uses these little prepositional phrases and clauses. You can take anything that Paul wrote and just break it down piece by piece. And the clauses all connect together. So he just builds 
an argument. He builds a, a series, right? And so we're talking about, cool, I, I want to be built up uh, in the body of Christ. I want the body of Christ to be built up. Well, what does that look like? Well, he's already mentioned it back at the beginning of the passage, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of faith. That's the first goal being built up. And knowledge of the Son of God. Notice there are three two words. T-O. He says, to this, to this, to this. Those are the three ways that we are built up. We are caught, we are all to attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That building up is aimed at attaining, first off, the unity of the faith, that is, a unity of the relationship of the people in this room, right? That we would be on the same page about the faith. That's the first way that we are built up into the, the body of Christ is built up. And also along with that, that we would grow in the knowledge of the Son of God. That is, in our relationship with God and knowledge of Him. Okay? So those kind of things play together. That's not why there's not a separate two. It doesn't say to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, because those things are connected. It's about us being of the same mind when it comes to the things of the faith and knowing the same God and, and being in relationship with him, okay? So that's the first thing. That's the first way in which we are built up. The third thing he says is to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We are built towards the standard, the bar, the benchmark of what? Of Jesus himself, that's nuts. Okay. Right. Like I, again, man, if, if you are a follower of Jesus and know what the Bible teaches about Jesus, that should, that should in a way almost feel like a gut punch to you that that's the standard. That's the goal that I'm supposed to be like Jesus. And the answer is yes. That's what we're working towards. Okay. Now again, the salvation and grace that we have in God means that we are safe, even though we don't ever reach that standard, but that's what we're called to. I'm always worried about people who just like see the message of grace in the Bible as an excuse to fail, right? They're like, that's fine, right? We don't have to worry about it. I don't have to try harder or be more or do anything because it's all about grace, right? And the answer is, if you are using grace that way, you are abusing it because the grace is supposed to call you to measure up to the stature of Christ, I don't know if, how many of y'all have older brothers or sisters, siblings, maybe cousins and things like that, but probably many of us had somebody in our life that we looked up to when we were little and we were like, man, I just wish I could grow up to be like them. I wish I could be as tall as they are, or strong as they are, or, or I don't know, whatever girls think about, right? You know, like I wish I could, I wish I could attain to that stature. That's what he's talking about. He's saying, look up to Christ, look up to Jesus and say, I would like to attain to the kind of life, character, faithfulness that is found in Jesus Christ. It's crazy. It's a crazy standard, but that's what we're called to. And then the third one that's stuck in the middle, he says, to mature manhood. And here's what I want you to think about that. We're not just being built up, but we are growing up. That's the deal. We are growing up into mature manhood, but a mature adulthood in the faith. And he elaborates on that in verse 14 and, and the effect it has. Verse 14, so that, watch those connector words when you're reading Paul's letters especially. 
We're being built in, up in the body of Christ. Unity of faith, knowledge of the Son of God, mature manhood, measure the stature of the fullness of Christ. Why? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves. You know, the problem is with being a child is that you are always vulnerable. That's the hard thing about being a child. You're at the mercy of forces around you, right? Like I think about the fact like one of my kids, I can't remember which one it was, like you would, if they would be doing something and then you would pick them up, they would kind of like flip out a little bit because it was sort of like, hey, man, I was doing something. Like I was down here working on this thing. And then this giant just walks in and picks me up and moves me to another context. Okay. You know why? Nobody does that to me. You're like, Ash, that's because you need to lose some weight. Whatever. Nobody picks me up and moves me to another place. Okay. The truth is somebody does. God does. Right. But I don't experience that in my daily life. But children do because children are vulnerable to the forces around them. If those forces are benevolent, then man, it can feel like a paradise to be a child, right? Like you just go around having fun and doing what you want to all the time because you've got somebody who is benevolent watching over you. But if the forces around you are malicious, then the outcome can be tragic, right? That's the, the, we see that all around us in our, in our culture every single day. Well, the same is true for churches. The church that is dependent on things outside of itself are similar to those children. They exist under the good graces of others, then things will go pretty good. But if those good graces disappear, then the church is put in jeopardy. And so Paul says, I don't want you to be children, right? I want you to be adults in the faith. Paul points out two or three broad kind of distinct points of danger, points of vulnerability for a church like that. He goes on and he says, one, that they're tossed in these waves, and it says they are carried about by every wind of doctrine. Right? That's a key thing. An immature church gets thrown around when it comes to doctrine because they don't know the solid foundation on which they stand. They forget their calling. They forget their function. They forget what they're supposed to be doing. And then all of a sudden they start falling into these goofy um, belief systems. And we see that all the time, man. We see that in, in all of the, the dumb, culty, goofy theology, pop psychology masquerading as theology that we see all through our culture all the time. Okay. So, so the, the, the childish church, the immature church gets thrown around by the winds of doctrine. They also get thrown around. Why? Or, or secondarily by human cunning. It falls into this crass or it's in danger of falling into this crass base works of human power and manipulation. That word cunning, we don't use the word cunning much anymore, but it means showing skill in achieving one's ends by deceit or evasion. And he says, man, that is a danger of an immature church is they fall into a situation where they start trying to solve their problems not by the word of God and what he's called us to, but instead by deceit, evasion, and and um, scheming, basically, you could say. In fact, that's exactly what he says, and you can make it another point, but we're just going to uh, connect them together. He says also, by the craftiness of deceitful schemes. Those aren't good words, 
cunning, craftiness, schemes, deceit. If you're out sometime and somebody says, oh yeah, Pleasant Grove at College Street, that's that cunning, crafty, scheming church, right? That's not a good thing, okay? That's not like, yeah, man, we're getting it. We're doing it right. That's not what we want. That is the life, though, of an immature church trying to survive. So one of the things that we learned when we were in foster, uh, looking at foster care, um, is all the different survival um, behaviors that children who have been at risk for long periods of time um, begin to take on. Um, and one of those is stealing and hoarding food. Okay, and so what you see is you see kids that are in a foster home. They're brought into a foster home that in that home, they are provided for amply. They have all the food, three meals a day. There's no problem. And then one day the foster parent will be in the child's room and they'll open a drawer and it'll be filled with pieces of food from dinner that they have wrapped up in a napkin and put in here or, or whatever. And there's a reason for that. Because those children in their immature, vulnerable state and the abuse that came from that is they have learned not to trust their circumstances, that they always have to watch out for themselves, that they always have to do something to make sure they get by on all of these things. And I'm saying to you that that's exactly what Paul is warning us about when he says that's what happens in an immature church. The immature church starts doing goofy things, drifting from the gospel, from the mission of the church. Because there's bills that have to be paid and there's seats that have to be filled. And we've got to do that because we've got to have that done. We've got to get that fixed by any means necessary. And Paul says, I don't want this for you. I want you to be a mature church, one that is grown up into Christ likeness. So what are the marks of a mature church? Well, for one, verse 15, he says, rather... Right Again, connector word, not the things that I just said, but instead something different. Rather, I want you to speak the truth in love. A phrase in the scriptures that we come back to over and over again, probably every other sermon I reference that passage. Maturity is fostered by and itself fosters truth and love and truth in love. Okay, so again, think about this. How do children act? What do children, the immature, do? Okay, children think about themselves. They just think about themselves. Children take a toy out of another child's hand, and it doesn't bother them at all that 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 kid was playing with it first or that kid owned it. Like, it doesn't even occur to them because they're watching out for themselves. They go, I wanted that toy, so I took it. That's what I did. They're not thinking about other issues. How many times have you seen a child, um, I see this, and, and it happens all the time in the youth group, we'll order pizza, and we've discovered you have to let the girls go first, right? Because the teenage boys, with no consideration for anybody else in the world, will stack their plates tall with pizza. And all of a sudden, it'll be like six guys have gone, and all 20 pizzas that you bought are have been... Put on a plate somewhere. So you have to say, girls, you go first. And the girls don't eat as much and they're a little more considerate typically. So they get their pizza and then the guys can come up and clean up whatever's whatever's left. But we know that happens all the time because that's just what immaturity does. Immaturity doesn't act out of love and concern for others. It acts out of love and concern for itself. But maturity 
acts in love, self-sacrificing service. That's what maturity looks like. So love takes responsibility for things despite what it costs themselves. So I'm sure I've told you this story probably multiple times, um, but a fellow pastor of mine was telling me about a time where they had were talking to a young 20-something, and they were asking that young 20-something to come help with a ministry event that weekend. And the young person said they couldn't help this weekend because they needed some rest time, some self-care time um, over the course of this weekend, so they weren't going to be at church. And the pastor, because they had a great relationship with that young person and, and, and were very upfront with them, said, okay, here's the deal. You are not married. You don't have kids. You don't have a full-time job. You're not in school. You are not regularly serving in the church or some other philanthropic endeavor. A significant amount of your time every week is spent playing video games and drinking coffee with friends and probably beer with other friends. What do you need to rest from? Like, what is, what's going on, right? But here's the deal. We all laugh at that, but the truth is this. We've all been there too, right? Like, we all remember those days in college where literally, man, we had no responsibilities and yet we felt super worn out. Like, we just like, oh man, I need a break this weekend or whatever. And it's like, you have no concept of it. Why? Because everybody's been there. That's a function of immaturity because you haven't stepped up to that next level yet. Adulthood oftentimes, and I'm just talking about in the world, oftentimes first finds it's, it's, you're forced into adulthood, right? There's all kinds of ways to find yourself in adulthood. The military is one way, right? You go to war. And a lot of times you come back more of an adult, okay, just because of the nature of that. But the way many people enter into adulthood is by having children, right? And all of a sudden, for the first time, you have to sacrificially care for this child. And then later on, you take another step in adulthood because you find out you don't have to just take care of your children. You have to take care of your parents in lots of ways, right? And that ends up being a function of your adulthood. But it's just what you do because that's what maturity does, I would tell you that the church and the individual members of a church can function in the same way in terms of immaturity. Always assuming that somebody else will do the thing. Always assuming that, assuming that somebody else will pay the bill or lead the ministry or, or whatever. Christy tells a story that I love. She talks about uh, years ago, um, and it's something that has probably, again, happened to all of us. We can all relate to us. She was somewhere, and she had a bunch of kids there, and the kids were all playing. And then one of the kids got hurt and, like, you know, not hospital hurt, but, like, significantly hurt. And Christy's first thought was, that kid just got hurt. Somebody should call an adult. And then she was like, oh, wait, I'm the adult, right? Um, I'm the one who needs to do something. Um, we probably all hit that point where you're like, man, I used to just be the dude who was standing in the background, and now I'm the person who needs to say something about whatever. Well, there can be moments in the church where the same kind of thing happens, where you look around and you say, man, somebody should tell an adult about this. And then you go, oh, wait, I'm the adult now. I'm the one who has to take responsibility for this. Is that going to be difficult, a hassle, take up time? All of those things cost energy and money and everything else. And the answer is, yeah, it is. That's what, that's what adulthood looks like. And so we have to be people who are acting in love, growing up into love, but also growing up into 
And he talks about speaking the truth. We speak the truth in love and love. There's no scheming to what we do. There shouldn't be any guile to what we do. We're not here to manipulate you. We're not here to get our way. I'm not trying to play anybody off of each other or convince somebody to do what I want them to do. We're just honest about the Word of God. We talk about the gospel in an honest way. We talk about sin in an honest way. We do the hard work of life together in as honest a way as we can. And again, the world looks at the church oftentimes and says, that's not what you guys are doing. You guys are trying to gain power over me. You're trying to get the moral high ground. You're trying to get the upper hand to manipulate me. And if we're honest in our sin, there are times when we have done that, right? But that is not the goal. That is not the model. And it's not what maturity calls us to. We have done those things in our own immaturity, in fact. But that's not the intent. The intent is maturity. And the mature speak the truth because it's true. That's just the way things are. It's just the reality. It's what God's word says. Not in a harsh way. We're not trying to bludgeon people with truth. But we just speak the truth in gentleness. So it's restated and reiterated at the end of verse 15. He says, we grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And then, again, reiterating the idea, verse 16, from whom, from Christ, from whom the whole body, that's us, the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So that being built up in love can only happen when every single point of connection is working properly. And I hate to use that language, but when everybody is carrying their weight according to their gift, it's the only way it can work. And I notice, notice this, there's just fun little language in here. Did you notice the, the, the illustration he uses? Okay. We're familiar. If you've read the New Testament, you're familiar with the illustration of the members of the church being organs of the body. Right. And so there's a place where it talks about the idea, hey, some of us are eyes and some of us are ears and, and you don't want an ear to do an eye job. And you don't want an eyes to do the, the job of the ears. Right. They can't. They're not equipped for that. That's one way the Bible talks about it. But he uses a different illustration here. He doesn't use the illustration of organs. He says, you know what we all are? We're all joints. And I'm like, that adds a whole different nuance to the whole picture. You know what joints are? Joints are points of movement. They are points of connection. They are points of friction. Some of you have started realizing that as you get older. They're points of vulnerability, right? Lots of injuries end up in those joint areas because they're places that are weak. They're particularly vulnerable, but also when they're working properly, man, the body can do incredible things. When every single one of those joints is moving smoothly and functioning properly, man, the church is capable of doing incredible things. And again, I know that many of us are stretched thin. Okay, here's the deal. If you have small kids in here, you are stretched thin. Right. If you're responsible for small children in any way, 
you are stretched thin. If you have elderly people who are you responsible for, responsible for in your life, you are stretched thin. You're literally in a situation where there are these little people walking around who if you don't do something for them, they die. Okay? That is as much responsibility as you can have for anybody. Okay? I get that we are all stretched thin. We have demanding work environments, some of us more than others. You have responsibilities of various kinds of kin care. Um, you have, again, many of us have small children that are completely dependent on us. But again, I go, those are all characteristics of maturity, right? That's what growing up means, is, is having those sort of responsibilities. And what I want to encourage you in is if the church does not become one of those responsibilities for you, then the church will cease to function, right? If you don't see the church as something that I have to care for and participate in and give my life and energy to, maybe not the same way you give it to your children. That would maybe be a little much. But if you are not willing to pour your care and concern into the church, then it will not function properly. Those joints will begin to break down. Um, they will become immobile. They will not do what they were intended to do, and the body will cease to function. Now, again, I'm sure probably the case of my tone and everything else is you may hear me saying these things accusatorily, right? And that's not my intent. Okay, but here's why I'm saying because I think, man, we got a lot of people who are doing a lot of things to serve our congregation. What I'm telling you is probably in the next year, there's going to be a whole lot more. Okay, and that's regardless of where we end up in terms of association with Mother Church or here, whatever else. It doesn't matter. It's only going to get heavier. Okay, and so you need to know that. If if we went to a church that had 2,000 people and this typical rule of the 80-20 rule was in place, and so 400 people were doing all the ministry in that church and the other 1,600 were just sitting around, maybe this message would have been different. But that's not the situation. We are a church not of 800 or 8,000, but of 70 or 80, right? It's just going to be different. Um, that probably means that it has to be the case that all hands are on deck. So what I want to do is go to the Lord in the time of prayer. I know we're about out of time. And guys, I'm not kidding. Man, that was that was quick. Okay. Uh, we got started late. I started the sermon late. It's a seven-page sermon. That should have taken me at least an hour, and it didn't. So um, so what I want to do now is just go to the Lord in the time of prayer. Um, it's going to be part of what we're praying for over the coming weeks, is especially when we meet in our um on our Sunday prayer meetings, but I hope that you are praying for it in terms of, of um, in your own personal time of prayer uh, and, and with your family prayer that God would continue to work in our congregation, to lead us in the right directions and to encourage us to grow into these ministries, to take responsibility for them and lead them uh, uh, and do what God has called us to do, that he would help me, be a good equipper. I'm not a great equipper on lots of different areas, right? That's something that I've got to grow into. And so the giftings that God has given me, I got to figure out how to use those better um, to serve you and do the things that I have been called to do. But, but let's ask God that he would do that.
that he would bless and that he would um, mature our congregation. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, you've ordained that we uh, would grow up. Father, you model that even in um, our biological lives. God, that we were born helpless and that as part of the natural maturation process, the natural process of growing, God, we become um, able to, to take care of ourselves and then cooperate with other people and then minister and work alongside them and to serve those who are unable to do for themselves. God, you model this growth in, in, in everything in life. So we ask that you would work it in our church. God, that we would put aside self-interest, that we would put aside um, just a desire to do the things that we want to do and not be bothered by other concerns. God, the assumption that someone should do that, but it shouldn't be me. God, that we would put all those things aside. None of us can do everything. None of us should do everything. And yet you have called every single one of us to, to serve and to work, and to grow, and to be a blessing to those around us. God, help us to do that. Show us all the myriad ways of what that means for each of us when it comes to our own giftings and our own roles and our own opportunities. God, help us to be those people. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Nothing of our sin, no legacy survives unless the Lord does raise the house in vain, his builders strive to boast tomorrow's gain. Tell me, what is your life? Amidst the vanishes at dawn, all glory be to Christ. All glory be to Christ, our King. All glory be to Christ. His rule in vain will never sing. All glory be to Christ. This will be done, his kingdom come on earth as Isabel 
who makes himself our daily bread. Praise him, the hope of love. Living water satisfy the thirsty without price. We'll take a cup of kindness yet of glory to Christ. All glory be to Christ our King. All glory be to Christ. His rule and reign will ever sing. All glory be to Christ. On the day the great I am the faithful and the true. The man who was for sin a slave is making all things new. We hope our God shall live with us and be our steadfast life. And he shall hear his people be all glory to Christ. All glory be to Christ our King. All glory be to Christ. His rule and reign will never sing. All glory be to Christ. All glory be to Christ our King. All glory be to Christ. His soul in vain will never see all the greetings to Christ. Old acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind. Should old acquaintance be forgot in the days of old anxiety. For all things I, my dear, for all things I, we will take a cup of kindness for the sake of all things I. Amen. So we added that little uh, piece on to the end of the song, obviously, because it's it's New Year's Eve and you guys sing Old Lang Syne um, on New Year's Eve. And it's to the tune of All Glory Be to Christ. So that made sense. Um, if you don't know what Old Lang Syne means, it basically is translated for old time's sake. OK, so it's a it's a song. Um, it's a refrain that we sing at New Year's because it's basically a song about forgiveness. It's a song about remembering uh, the bonds that that have united us before putting to bed the things, the, 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 the grievances that we have now, forgetting those things and, and remembering our care and love for each other for old time's sake. But I would encourage you to say we have something much greater than old time's sake, um, that binds us. We have, uh, Jesus Christ. Um, that his life, death, and resurrection binds us, that his Holy Spirit binds us, that we live in unity and in the bond of peace. Um, and those are the things that bring us together. And again, I, I, I feel like the case is, is that we are a church that does a, a good job at that. Doesn't mean we do a perfect job at that. There's always going to be, um, 
issues and, 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 and personalities that, that get in the way of those things. But in general, um, I think we are a church that, uh, knows the love that we have for her, uh, each other because of Jesus Christ. As I've said many times, the coming year, that will probably be all the more important. Okay. Um, because there will be all kinds of things in this coming year. There will be disagreements. There will be differences about the direction that we end up going or should have gone or what we should be doing or whatever. Throw all that in with an election, uh, you know, and, and the general upheaval that the world is in. It's, it's going to be a great year to be in disagreement with each other if you want to be. But because of Jesus Christ, we can have unity um, and be in fellowship with each other. And I hope that's the case. So I uh, hope you have a great evening. Um, go home and stay up and watch the ball drop or go to bed at 10 o'clock like I'm going to do. Uh, and so, um, but here's benediction as you go. Oh, one more thing. Uh, I forgot. So we're going to, along with our reading plan this year, so we've got a couple of reading plans. If you want to read through the New Testament, the Old Testament, the Old Testament narrative, the wisdom literature, several reading plans out there for you to encourage you to be in the word every single day uh, in 2024. We're also going to do something where um, Melissa is going to kind of organize it or whatever. She's going to be the promoter, I guess you'd say, of it. But we are going to do a scripture memorization um, uh program, right? And so basically we're going to shoot for um, trying to memorize one passage of scripture every week for the 52 weeks of the year. And so we'll get that out to you, the the list and what verses we're going to do. Might even be some little appy type things uh, and tech things that might be little study helps and things for you to um, benefit from too. I should have had that more in place today, and but I'm just getting it to Melissa this service. So she'll have, we'll put that something out about that on, on Facebook and social media kind of stuff or whatever. And, and then y'all can kind of engage with it as you want to. Obviously there's some people might say, no, that's Ash. That's not the direction I'm going to go with my discipleship this year, but if it's something that would be beneficial to you, um, hope you'll, you'll be a part of that. Here's the benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. Happy new year. Everybody can help us get cleaned up. That would be awesome. Thank you very much. After the holidays, man, it's just like, I felt it last night, and it's just been with me.